I'm going to go off script a little bit and actually read all of chapter 2 out of Gospel of Matthew, because I think that the context of the whole story of the Magi is important. Uh, And the second half of this chapter in our three-year lectionary cycle of scripture readings, uh, the second half of the chapter only shows up once in that cycle, and that's in the the first Sunday of Advent of what we call year A of the cycle, which uh, (coughs) this coming December when we start a new Advent again, we'll be entering year A, so you'll hear uh, the second half again then. But uh, I think it's unfortunate it only gets read that once every three years. Uh, so I want to read the whole thing. So we have here the arrival of uh, these three wise men, the Magi, or astrologers, uh, religious men, whatever, uh, whatever we, want, we want to call them. And their arrival, uh, their arrival at the manger is a very kind of nice uh, and tidy story. They arrive and they bear gifts. Uh, but their arrival is clouded with pain and death. Uh, it's not uh, a nice story what happens around these wise men uh, and uh, clouded in pain and death in a way that may resonate with us as we're still just a month away from uh, the uh, shooting of the children in Newtown. Uh, and so let us listen to this text and strive to listen with, with some new ears to this story of the Magi or wise men or whatever we want to call them and who only appear in Matthew's gospel. And uh, in fact, everything in this chapter only appears in this gospel. And so let us hear now these words from Matthew's gospel and listen for how God is speaking to us through them. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so, uh, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. And then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. And when Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he will be called a Nazarene. Here ends the reading. And thanks be to God. The Gospels of Mark and John do not give us a birth narrative. When Jesus shows up in those Gospels, uh, he's already an adult. There's no mention of his previous life, although in the Gospel of John, John does go all the way back to the beginning of creation uh, to say that Jesus was present with God in the act of creation, that Jesus as the Word was there, was there with God. But there's no, no infancy narrative in either of those two Gospels. And in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke gives us the story of the shepherds coming to see Jesus. Uh, and and continues with this nice story of other people uh, in Jesus' life and at the temple and other places recognizing who Jesus is uh, and saying to you know Mary, what a wonderful person uh, Jesus is going to grow up to be, and this is the Messiah and the good and the good man. But Matthew, whoever wrote this gospel, Matthew gives us these magi, these wise men and infanticide. It's quite a dichotomy. These foreign wise men who are the only ones outside of Jesus' family who realize that something important and good has happened. No one else around Jesus other than his family in Matthew know what's happened except these foreign wise men and this paranoid vassal of Rome, Herod, who slaughters children because he fears what this child might become that he has heard about. Herod doesn't recognize Jesus specifically. I mean, not, you know, not by name. He doesn't come to the manger to see Jesus. But Herod does recognize that something has happened. He knows that something has happened that's going to change his life and change it in a threatening way if he allows it to happen. Herod is the state. 
He is the state. And his way is a way of violence and death and power over others. He represents a a legal system that's built on punishment uh, and cruelty. And so Herod cannot allow this prince of peace to appear, can't allow the words peace to be uttered or the word mercy or compassion, forgiveness. Uh, They are all threatening to Herod. And so he does what he does. And looking just at the Gospel of Matthew, we see that outside of Jesus' family, the only other Jewish person that recognizes what's happened is Herod. Herod was not ethnically Jewish, possibly, but religiously he was Jewish. And Herod is the only other Jewish person who recognizes the birth of a Messiah. And to him, this is not a good thing. Not anything to be celebrated, but it's an event that threatens his power. And so he orders the murder of all the children under two years old in and around Bethlehem. Apparently, for Herod, the children's death was an acceptable price to pay for him to hold on to his power. That's a price he was willing to pay. And we might think that it is certainly quite horrible and an evil act, and it is. And it is. But how many children continue to die unnecessarily around the world at the hands of us and the hands of others? Children that die in in sweatshops because we want cheap clothes or cheap toys or who die from hunger because we don't want to change the way that we live and share what we have. How many die from violence here in the U.S. because we think that's maybe an okay price to pay for the culture that we've created, culture of privilege or of celebration of the individual over the community or oneself at the expense of others. Or covering up sexual abuse to protect the primacy of athletes, whether it was at uh, state universities uh, or Steubenville. That's in the news now. Where we who live in this time when girls and women are raped and abused, including in our military, their rapists often go unpunished or go unreported out of fear or girls and women that are sprayed with acid or shot simply because they want an education and the men around them feel threatened by that and cloak that in religious dogma. Herod was not the last to cause the suffering of innocence to protect his life of comfort. It goes on. And as I said in my sermon a few weeks ago after the shootings at the elementary school in Connecticut, I don't have the answers. This is a huge, difficult problem. But if we're going to be appalled at the murder of the children at the elementary school, and we should be. We absolutely should be. 
If we're going to be appalled at their murder at the hands of one person, we also ought to be appalled at the thousands of others who were killed last year, of children who died violent deaths last year in the U.S. and around the world, and also be appalled at those who were allowed to die of hunger or allowed to die because they lack health care or allowed to die because they're in abusive households. All those other children whose names will never grace a memorial plaque, whose names will never be uttered in a presidential speech, children for whom church bells will never be rung and for whom the nation will never come to a moment of silence to remember. Rachel weeps for all her children and refuses to be consoled because they are no more. And let us remember them as well in our social dialogue. But this act of Herod was not a one-time event, but continues. And in the name of the Prince of Peace that we follow, that shouldn't be happening should not be happening. And we have also in this story of these wise men that set some of this up in in motion. They're the ones that let Herod know what's happened. They come to him first. They assume as the ruler he would, uh, you know, give them proper directions uh, and be good about this. But there are these wise men that come from a foreign land. They're not Jewish not Roman. We don't know who they are, which makes them kind of interesting because Matthew never really tells us who they are. He just says these wise men from the east. And I don't know if you've ever uh, looked at a map of Asia, but there's an awful lot of continent to the east of Israel. These guys could be from just about anywhere. Uh, And the Roman Empire ended not too much farther uh, to the east of of Israel, so there is a whole lot of continent that was not part of the Roman Empire that these guys might be from. And we don't know how many there are. The number is unknown, but tradition holds it to be three. Three wise men. We have three wise men here. Uh, and I number really chosen, I think, because there's three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, but I think that's very hopeful thinking on the part of those who came up with the tradition to assume that in a group of men there would be a 100% success rate of remembering to buy a gift and to bring it. I imagine there were probably 10. 10 magi, and I imagine that about half, halfway to Bethlehem they realized that eight of them brought nothing and looked around at each other and said, well, I, I, I didn't bring anything. Well, let's take an offering. Let's put together some gold, pass the hat. And then they show up in, in Bethlehem and bring their gifts to Mary. And in a sense, it's kind of like, well, we got you a gift certificate. There you go. I'm just kind of teasing the men, but I do that because that's been me on occasions. But the wise men arrive. 
these foreigners, and they give gold, always, I think, a good gift for a newborn. I'm sure my mother would have appreciated some gold. Any of you that are parents, I'm sure, would have appreciated some gold at the birth of your children. But it's also a sign of Jesus' importance. You know, gold, as it is now, back then, also incredibly valuable. Most people would never have seen a gold coin or at least held one or owned one. This is a rich gift signifying Jesus' importance and frankincense to signify Jesus' divinity. That was an incense that was burned in temples to, to God. I mean, a temple in Jerusalem to God, but in other religions, frankincense to God. And myrrh, a funeral balm to anoint a dead body. They bring these gifts. A gift to say that he is important, so here's something to help raise him. A gift that says he is divine, uh, so here, here is the frankincense to show that he is divine and another gift to Mary, the sad one, to say here is a balm for his body and I'm sorry to say, but you will still be around and need to use this. The wise men know what's going on. And these foreigners, these outsiders, these non-Jewish men some of whom may very well have been Buddhist or Hindu. Those religions were already around to the East, which is interesting, I think, to think about, that perhaps a Buddhist and a Hindu and some other religions were represented there at the manger. These are the guys who know who Jesus is. Jesus' Jewish neighbors were perhaps too much inside the system to see what was happening, to recognize what was going on. And plus, they, they weren't looking for God to act. Or if they were looking for God to act, they were expecting God to act in a certain way. They had an expectation of a certain kind of Messiah. And so anything that was happening that didn't fit that bill that didn't fit their notions of what a a proper Messiah ought to be like, God ignored. No one else noticed. And so thank God for those who are on the outside. Thank God for those who are on the outside who can point us in the right direction. And often do those who can hold up a mirror to us and say, "This this is what you really look like. Whatever you think you look like, maybe not. Think of those outside the church that have been helpful in so many ways in critiquing the church, helping us grow and change and become more of what we are supposed to be. And we began this journey in Advent that we celebrate today. We have that Advent, the four weeks of waiting for the Messiah, and then Christmas, 12 days of celebrating his birth, and then Epiphany, uh, which... It begins today and goes for a number of weeks, this time of recognizing the divine among us that takes us to the transfiguration and then into Lent. Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany all all are on one trajectory, pointing toward Christ, pointing to Jesus. We expect Emmanuel, God with us, in Advent. We celebrate Emmanuel through Christmas We look for Emmanuel through Epiphany. Where is God among us? 
And then we have Lent and Easter to learn this is what Emmanuel has done for us and then spend that long time between Easter and the next Advent looking at or asking the question, how do we respond to what Emmanuel has done for us? God is indeed with us. God is present with us. We light the Christ candle to show, uh, represent that God is, is with us. But God is also with us always. Wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he is there. And even one person gathered. God is present. God is everywhere. God is with us. God was in all of the babies in Bethlehem. And God was in all of those babies' parents and family and friends and neighbors. God is with us in all who suffer, in all who seek to relieve suffering, who are going about God's business. And God was also in the manger. And the wise men saw that. They realized that. And imagine a world in which we saw recognized in all who are born. Imagine a world in which we saw them all as the Christ, as Emmanuel, as God with us, and treated each other with gold and frankincense and myrrh to recognize the divine nature in each of us and to support one another in life and to comfort and bring dignity in death care for other people the entire journey of their lives. I think that's the world that the wise men saw in Jesus. And that's certainly the world that Emmanuel points us to. 